You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the Scripture reading this afternoon. It's taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Well, this afternoon we're continuing with our series on the book of Mark. 
And we've come to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that He had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And He preached the Word to them. Some men came, bringing to Him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get Him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in His Spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. and He said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, Take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. As I was driving to church this afternoon with my children, I told them that there are a number of surprises in our text. And perhaps also the other children in the congregation might also want to watch for the surprises that are here in this text. So, beloved in the Lord Jesus, the story I'm about to tell you took place in the early 1950s but it could just as well have taken place in many parts of the world yesterday or today. A man named Yei, not a common name among us by any means, but his name was Yei. He was paddling his canoe and he beached his canoe at the Sawi camp along the shores of the Hanai River in Papua, Indonesia. These Sawi, that was the name of their tribe, were of the Kangi clan. And Yei was also a Sawi, but he was from the Mauro clan. Two different clans. And the Kangi were angry at the Mauro for some reason that's no longer clear. It's been long forgotten. Yei had come to make things right. As he got out of his canoe, he made it clear that he'd come in peace. He brought gifts for the Kangi, and they were pleased. They welcomed him as a friend. And they even gave a feast for him. It appeared that they were on the way to becoming reconciled. And over the next few months, Yei continued to paddle down the river every so often, continued to visit the Kangi clan, and he tried to keep things going in the, in the right direction. Each time he would return home, he would tell his fellow clansmen of the progress he was making. One day, Yei came to the village just as he'd been doing for some time, the Kangi village. 
As always, he was warmly welcomed. He was led into the man house. And a feast of toasted sago grubs was prepared. And as they talked about an upcoming feast, the Kangi men looked at one another. And they gave a nonverbal signal. At just the right moment, they pounced on Yei with their spears and daggers. As he ran bleeding out of the manhouse, the village children shot their arrows at him and the women clubbed him. Right before he died, Yei heard these words, We have been fattening you with friendship for the slaughter. In many cultures around the world, forgiveness is seen as weakness. It was certainly that way with the Sawi in the 1950s. For many people in the world, revenge is a moral duty, an obligation. If you want an example for the modern day world, just think of the situation in the Middle East and how things keep going back and forth and back and forth with the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Jews and the Palestinians and so on. Though perhaps not as dramatic, it's the same way in our culture. People have no problem extending and accepting apologies. After all, an apology can be rationalized in many different ways. I may feel sorry today, but perhaps I won't tomorrow. I may simply feel sorry that you were offended, and hey, you shouldn't be so sensitive. I'm sorry that I was caught, and so on. Apologies are cheap and easy. By themselves, apologies do little to heal relationships. And if you rationalize them long enough, they are entirely compatible with revenge. At its root, forgiveness is something completely different. At its root, forgiveness is a promise. Now that's what makes forgiveness different from an apology. When someone asks for and receives forgiveness... And in the process, they'll also express sorrow for the wrong that they've done. They'll say they're sorry, right? Well, when that happens, all those things together, the offense is taken out of the way. When there is forgiveness, the obstacle to a full, healthy relationship, that obstacle is taken out of the way. And the one doing the forgiving promises never to bring it up again, never to hold it against the person ever again. The obstacle is gone, and it will remain gone forever. Forgiveness is a promise of restored relationship. That's the forgiveness God promised in the Old Testament. In passages like Jeremiah 31-34, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Forgiving and forgetting are parallel in that passage. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Forgiving and forgetting go hand in hand. And that points us to a restored relationship. It's that divine forgiveness that the Lord Jesus was offering to the paralytic in Mark 2. And it's that forgiveness that we need to learn as well. Here in God's Word, we find that the Lord Jesus is revealed to us as the Son of Man 
who has authority on earth to loose people from their sins. And so the text for this afternoon can be summarized with this theme and these points. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And we'll consider, first of all, the display of His power. Second, its dispute. And then finally, we'll also consider the defense of His power. Well, at the end of chapter 1, when we finished off, the Lord Jesus was staying in desert places and trying to avoid the crowds. But yet, no matter where He went, the crowds followed Him. It was impossible to avoid the people. And sometime later, Mark tells us, Jesus came back to Capernaum. You may remember that this was the place where the Lord Jesus had healed the mother-in-law of Peter. This town on the Sea of Galilee was Jesus' home base, you could say. In fact, from verse 1, it appears that the Lord Jesus had a home for Himself in this place. Verse 1 ends by telling us that the crowds had heard that He had come home. And the way that's expressed in the Greek shows us that it was His own house. Well, it didn't take long before the word spread near and far, and Jesus' house was packed full of people. It would have been a large house to begin with. And now, there were so many people packed in that they were overflowing past the door. At the end of verse 2, we read that Jesus preached the Word to them. This is worth noting, especially because of what was going on in the first chapter. Towards the end, we saw that there was a tension between two things. You remember? There was a tension between what the people wanted from Jesus and what Jesus saw as their need. There was a tension between His desire to preach the Gospel and their desire to see and experience healings and other miracles. He emphatically said in 138 that He had come to preach, but all the people really wanted were His miracles. Most of them weren't that interested in what He had to say about sin and salvation. They just wanted Him for what He could do for them. Now as he returns to Capernaum, he does what he came out to do. He preaches. He preaches the Word. Well, let's stop and consider for a moment what that means. In chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord Jesus went about proclaiming the good news of God. He told them that the kingdom of God had come near and that they had to repent and believe the good news. He taught and he, he preached this message in the synagogues of Capernaum, of Galilee rather, including Capernaum. And now he's come back and he continues to preach that same message. He's telling people the good news that salvation has come. The promises are being fulfilled. God's kingdom has come near. As he's preaching in his own home, he's telling them that they have to repent and believe the gospel. He's telling the people what they really need to hear. The same message that we too, we need to hear. That we need to respond to ourselves with faith and repentance. Well, as he was preaching, something remarkable happened overhead. 
Some men had come down the road to Jesus' house and they were carrying a friend of theirs. Perhaps he was a family member. Carrying him on a stretcher or a mat. The fellow was a paralytic. He had no use of his legs. Before we go any further, we should not gloss over the seriousness of this condition. It's not a simple matter of not being able to use your legs. Paralysis can lead to all sorts of complications, some of which may even result in death. Paralysis was and still is a dangerous condition. So it's no wonder that these four men, they felt compassion for their friend and brought him to Jesus' house. They'd heard about how Jesus had healed so many others and they had faith that he would be able to do the same for their friend. But when they arrive at the house, they find that there's no way to get inside. The crowd is thick and dense inside and outside the house. However, these fellows were not easily dissuaded. They were creative people. They noticed the stairs, right? Because houses in those parts had stairs going up to the flat roof. And a light bulb went on. They had an idea. They climbed up the stairs and they got to work. Now, roofs in those days were nothing fancy. There would be some beams going across. That would be kind of the base layer. And over those beams would be some smaller branches, lengthwise, or widthwise, rather. And then a, a layer of clay or mud would be put on top of that. It wouldn't take long to dig through this, even just with your bare hands. And then create an opening big enough to let down a stretcher. And so that's what they did. Before long, Jesus stopped speaking as a man came down through his roof. Now, they didn't ask Jesus before they did this. They just went right ahead and destroyed part of Jesus' roof. Of course, they, they did it to help their friend, and the roof would be fairly easy to fix. But that still doesn't take away from the cheekiness of these fellows. They've got some gall, really. Come to Jesus' house, take apart his roof, interrupt his preaching, and then expect him over top of all that to heal their friend. You can imagine it. You can just see the scene as, as pieces of the roof are falling down on Jesus' head and he's looking up at the growing hole and this man then descending on his mat or on his stretcher. Amazing. And that was the first surprise that day. The bigger surprise was the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth when he saw the paralytic laying in front of him with the clear blue sky over his head. I mean, what would you say if someone tore up your roof and did something like this? Most likely, you'd say something like, what do you think you're doing? Didn't you wait until some other time? Did you really have to see me right now? Got some time in my schedule tomorrow. But that's not the way Jesus responds. And we're told, first of all, that He sees their faith. Don't miss that detail. Whose faith is He seeing? What's the faith of the man and his friends? They believe that Jesus is going to heal. They believe that Jesus is going to overlook the destroyed roof and have compassion 
And know too that He sees their faith. He sees it in their actions. But most importantly of all, He sees it in their hearts. He knows what's driving them to this extreme measure of tearing up a rabbi's roof. He sees their faith. And then He utters the words we would all love to hear directly from Jesus' lips. Son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa! That blows us away. His roof gets torn up. His preaching gets interrupted. And then He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice that the paralytic didn't ask to have his sins forgiven. But the Lord Jesus goes ahead and does it anyway. Now, brothers and sisters, doesn't that, doesn't that grab you? It reminds you of what happens later when Christ is on the cross and He prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. There too, the Jews and the Romans, they didn't say, Oh Lord Jesus, please forgive us for what we're doing to You. They didn't ask for forgiveness. But yet, it is extended to them. And here too. And you know, there's an important truth for all of us to grasp here. Because we are in Christ, aren't we? We have union with Him through the Holy Spirit. And as those who are in Christ by faith through the Spirit, we need to see that people don't have to ask us for forgiveness in order for us to forgive them. Ideally, that's what should happen. But we don't live in a perfect world. Sometimes human pride gets in the way. Our pride won't let people ask for forgiveness when they should. Sometimes other factors like distance or, or even death get in the way. But we can and we must forgive even when those who have hurt us don't get down on their knees in front of us and ask us. This was the way of the Lord Jesus and it will be the way of those who are in Him too. Well, let's look even deeper at those those rich and beautiful words. Son, your sins are forgiven. Note that Jesus uses a, a term of affection. He calls him son. It's like he's putting his hand tenderly upon his shoulder. Son. The Lord does have compassion upon this man. In fact, his compassion stretches to the man's greatest need. And perhaps the man knew this need. Perhaps he was bothered by the connection that the Jewish people often made between sin and sickness. The idea that, hey, you're paralytic, you must have done something. What did you do to deserve this? Jewish people often made that connection. Perhaps he was bothered by it. The text doesn't tell us. What we do know is that the Lord Jesus certainly did know this man's greatest need. He knew that what this man really needed was the restored relationship with God that he had come to bring. The roof? That's not a big deal. Who cares? Being a sinner 
is a big deal. What the paralytic needed most wasn't healing, wasn't a word pardoning him for the destruction of Jesus' roof, but a word of pardon, canceling his debt against the holy God. That's what Jesus gave him, and that's what he gives us in the Holy Gospel as well. Seeing the faith that the Spirit has worked in our hearts, he comes to us. He comes to you. He comes with his words of good cheer. Son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. You are restored. This is the opening of the kingdom of heaven that we confess from the Scriptures in Lord's Day 31. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God really has forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the Gospel. That's a beautiful way of putting it, isn't it? And so, brothers and sisters, loved ones, accept again the promise of the Gospel this afternoon and know that God really has forgiven you for the sake of Christ's merits. Just as He forgave the paralytic, He also forgives you and He receives you into grace. The forgiveness spoken of here means that God takes your sins and He, he puts them out of the way. There are no obstacles in your relationship with Him. And even though you sin every day, every day, time and again, repenting and believing the Gospel, He will remove your sins and open the way for fellowship. He promises not to hold your sins against you. It's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't that encouraging? In all this, we see a a brilliant display of Christ's power to forgive sins. And indeed, it does encourage us. However, in His day, there were those who disputed this power. Let's now briefly consider that. As I already mentioned, this is a text full of surprises. And verse 6 introduces another surprise into the scene. We see some people here that we haven't met yet in Mark's Gospel. Teachers of the law. From the parallel passage in Luke, we know that these men had come from all over, from Galilee, from Judea, and even from as far away as Jerusalem. They'd come to check out what Jesus was preaching and teaching, excuse me, and doing. They were the watchmen in Israel. And now, they could congratulate themselves. Because finally, they were rewarded with some heretical words from this man's lips. Now interestingly, Mark doesn't tell us that they, they said anything out loud. Instead, they were thinking to themselves, reasoning within their hearts, as some other translations have it. They were thinking that Jesus was a blasphemer for talking like this because, after all, only God can forgive sins. You know, the fact is that these teachers of the law, they were right. They knew their Bibles, mostly. In Isaiah 43.25, God says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. 
See also the parallel there again between forgiving and forgetting. Only God could forgive sins. And sins, by definition, are offenses against God. Moreover, the Jewish rabbis knew that according to the laws of the Old Testament, a priest could declare God's forgiveness of sins on the basis of repentance, restitution, and sacrifice. But that wasn't the same as actually forgiving the sins. God did the forgiving and the priest made the announcement. That's not what's happening here in Mark 2. And the teachers of the law, they knew that. When they heard Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven, they understood very clearly that Jesus was making Himself to be out on the same level as God. He was taking a divine prerogative, doing something that only God had the right and the authority to do. And in so doing, they believed that He was blaspheming God. He was being defiantly irreverent, injuring God's majestic reputation, stealing God's authority for Himself. Now, the teachers of the law were right, but only on the assumption that Jesus was a mere man. And that, of course, is where they went wrong. They couldn't fathom the idea that a human being would have the authority to forgive sins committed against the Most High Majesty of God. Well, to understand what's happening here and its significance, we need to look a bit beyond our text. As we get deeper into Mark's Gospel, these teachers of the law and other Jewish leaders begin to feature more prominently. They first appear at this point in the history of Jesus' ministry on earth, in Mark, and they become bigger and bigger players until they put Jesus to death. And so what we see happening here is the foundation being laid, first of all, for the smear campaign against Jesus, and then later on, finally, the death warrant. Well, in due time, we'll consider in more detail the opposition of those Jewish leaders. For now, let's move on and consider the defense that Jesus offers for His authority or power to forgive sins. Mark tells us in verse 8 that right away, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Just like He could see faith in the hearts of the paralytic and His friends, so He could also see into the hearts of the teachers of the law. Now how could He do that? You see, that's another amazing thing in this text. The teachers of the law look at Him as a mere man, but from the fact that He can look into hearts, we who are reading this, we know that He is much more than a man. In fact, the only way that He could do this was by the exercise of His divine power. He was true man and true God. As true God... He could look into hearts and know what people were thinking and what was driving people. And of course, today, today He still has the same power. He knows what lives in your heart. He also knows who lives in your heart. He knows that His Spirit is living in you. 
And through Him, working with the Word, He is transforming you into His image. But, unfortunately, that's not what was happening with the teachers of the law. They were clearly showing, as John, uh, Jesus would say in John's Gospel, that they were children of the devil. That may sound strong and harsh. The fact is that the same Word that taught the people of God that only God can forgive sins, that same Word also taught that a Messiah was coming who would be both God and man. When the sheep heard the voice of the Good Shepherd, they recognized it and followed Him. But for many of these teachers of the law, their their ears were not capable of hearing His voice, for God Himself had, had covered over their ears and plugged them so that they couldn't hear. And so they refused to listen to the whole Word of God. They would just pick and choose the parts which suited them. And so Jesus challenges them about what they were thinking in their hearts. He asks them why they would be thinking these things, and then He presents them with a question. Which is easier, to forgive the sins of the paralytic or to heal him? Here's another surprise. A surprising question. It captures the tension in Jesus' ministry up to this point. The people wanted Him to do nothing but heal. But Jesus wanted to preach so that people would receive forgiveness of their sins and be restored to relationship with God. The fact is that question, which is easier, that put the teachers of the law in a knot. Why is that? Well, because they believed that both healing and forgiveness were things that only God can do. Neither is easy for a man. In fact, both are impossible for a mere man. Having asked the question, Christ goes on to tell us that He is no mere man. Verse 10, He calls Himself the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man, we're going to meet that expression more often. It's unusual. It's drawn from the Old Testament. In passages like we read from Daniel 7. Daniel 7, God takes a man who has been attacked. He vindicates him and He gives him divine authority so that he can dispense judgment. In Mark 2, God Himself comes as a man who is attacked, but a man who has authority to dispense not only justice, but also grace and forgiveness. Son of man is human, but more. And then the Lord Jesus goes on to heal the paralytic, and He does that to teach that the Son of Man really does have authority on earth to forgive sins. This may not be easy to understand, so you'll have to listen carefully when I say this. If this man can heal... If he can do what only God can do in that area, then certainly 
He also has the authority and the power to forgive sins on earth too. And notice how the tension between healing and preaching is resolved here. Both are parts of Christ's ministry on earth. But the main thing is the forgiveness of sins. The healings are there to point God's people to the forgiveness of their sins in Christ. If He can heal them, certainly He also has power to forgive them. And so the Lord Jesus does. He heals the paralytic and He tells him to take up his mat and go home. And the paralytic does exactly what Jesus told him to do. Mark tells us that this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. You get the sense of surprise in those words? You know, we should never read these verses ourselves and stop being amazed at who our Savior is, what He did there and what He's done for us. We should never stop being filled with praise for the God of our salvation. Because the good news preached by Christ is also good news for us today. A believing people is a forgiven people. We know and we believe that the Son of Man does have authority on earth to forgive sins also today. And He announces the forgiveness of sins upon the earth through His appointed means, instruments. And of those means, one of the most prominent is the church. In John 20.23, the Lord Jesus told the apostles, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In this passage, the church of Christ is called to extend His forgiveness of sins upon the earth. And the church does that through the Word as it's preached and as it's read in the worship services. Now, of course, we can also seek and receive His forgiveness as individuals in our own private prayers and devotions. But the only place that we corporately receive forgiveness, that we seek and receive forgiveness from God as a community is here when we gather in this building for the worship services. We're often afflicted with the individualism of our broader culture. And we fail to see that God not only deals with us as individuals, but also as a community, a covenant community. Forgiveness applies not only to the individual, but also to the people of God as they're gathered together in local churches. And that is why it's important that we continue the biblical practice of humbling ourselves together before God's law each Sunday. Confessing our sins together and being driven together each time to the cross of Christ. Because like the paralytic, our greatest need is forgiveness. And that applies as equally to us as a community 
as to individuals within that community. And having received forgiveness and being assured of the Gospel promises, we'll also in turn increasingly become a forgiving people. We sons and daughters of men increasingly reflect the image of the Son of Man. Also in this respect, when others hurt us and offend us, we'll be willing to forgive. Even going so far as to forgive when no forgiveness has been asked for. Believing the Gospel of Jesus Christ is what makes this happen in our lives. You know, it did so for the Sawi too. In the 1950s and the 1960s, the Gospel came to that region of Papua. Tribesmen who were formerly consumed with revenge and hatred, violence and murder, they were converted under the preaching of Christ. They learned of the depth of His forgiveness for them. And they in turn learned, albeit imperfectly, just like with us, they learned how to forgive one another. The result is the same as what we see at the end of our text this afternoon. Praise is given to God. And let us too praise God for what He's done for us and among us. In Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.